I know, I know you want more. So yeah, so that's a video of uh, Chris Finn when he had hair. If the sermon title in the bulletin didn't give it away already and you didn't expect that, that was John Mellencamp. I was born in a small town. I live in a small town. I'll probably die in a small town. Oh, those small communities. Small town is Mellencamp's ode to the small town. Now, I found that somebody had actually calculated this. The words small and town compromise 18.5% of the lyrics of that song. And the phrase small town occurs 18 times, which means 36 of the 211 words in the song are small town. And in fact, somebody else calculated that about every, on average, every 12.4 seconds, he says small town. So as you might guess, it's a song about the small town. And one of the things that makes it so endearing is that he doesn't rant and rail or disparage cities or large towns. He's simply singing about his love of the small town. You know, he wrote about his own experiences because he was born and then grew up in a small town, born in Seymour, Indiana, living in Bloomington, Indiana. In 2003, he told Rolling Stone magazine, I wanted to write a song that said, you don't have to live in New York or Los Angeles to live a full life or enjoy your life. Small town. You know, it's such an anti-cultural sentiment. You know, the, the middle small town of America has been dubbed flyover country. Small town dwellers are often parodied and poked fun at. The Algonquin people used, used their word podunk to describe regions and the people who lived in those regions that were remote and marshy locations. And we've adopted their word to talk about the rural small town. Podunks are filled with people stereotyped at best as simple, suspicious of outsiders and gossipy about the insiders. And at worst, they're painted as poor and uneducated and inbred people who time and progress have just left behind. You know, there was one author who observed our culture doesn't celebrate the small town except in some very specific situations. He wrote, essentially, small towns are valuable for our entertainment, humor, and vacation. They serve as a good setting for romance novels or horror movies, but are otherwise unimportant. But cities, now cities, we celebrate cities as the center of culture and commerce and power. How did things go today on Wall Street in New York? What are they wearing this season in Paris? What is Los Angeles producing as part of the next movie cycle? What decisions today came out of Washington? Cities are celebrated as the place to be. Everyone who wants to be anyone goes to the city to find fortune and fame. Anyone who's anyone who wants to climb the ladder of power does it in the city. Anyone who wants to make a difference in the world, to shape the world by, by culture and art or by legislation, you go to the city. Cities are important, but the small town? Let's just fly over country. Podunk, insignificant, unimportant. At least in the eyes of our culture. But what about in the eyes of our God? What does our God think about the small town? Our culture might see the small town as of little importance or significance, and the people who live there the same. 
But what does the Christmas story tell us about the importance of the small, the seemingly insignificant, the podunk? Could it be? Could it be that in God's economy, the insignificant, the unimportant, the podunk in the eyes of the world, those born in a small town, living in a small town, probably dying in a small town, that they too, that we too, might have an important part to play in God's purposes. In asking that question, let's pray together. Lord, as we open your word today, speak to us. Speak to us about what's really important, because our world tells us certain things are important and certain things are not important. But Lord, maybe your view is different. Maybe we need to listen to your view of what's important. Maybe we need to understand what you want and what you desire over what the culture might tell us. So, Lord, speak to us as we open your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, if you have a pew Bible, that's page 757. If you happen to have a large print pew Bible in front of you, that's page 960. Or open in your own Bible or in your Bible app. But wherever you open, open with me to Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to start reading in verse 1. So Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written and written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you found him. Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country in another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled with the prophet what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. 
she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, art influences our understanding in some powerful ways. For example, if I was to ask the average person how Mary traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, you would likely hear, by donkey. You know, our imagination has been shaped more by the art of Hallmark Christmas cards than by Scripture. Because the Bible is actually silent as to how the couple traveled to Bethlehem. And if you ask the average person what the innkeeper said to Joseph and Mary, you will likely hear there is no room in the inn. But we find that our imaginations have been shaped more by the drama of a thousand nativity plays than by Scripture. Because the Bible not only lacks mentions, mention of words from the innkeeper, the Bible never actually mentions an innkeeper at all. However, the three kings might be the most misunderstood characters in the traditional Christmas story. Recognizing the influence of art on how we understand the story, I do not regularly include the singing of the traditional Christmas carol, We Three Kings. Because before we even get to the text of the carol itself, the title of the carol is wrong. First, they weren't kings. The Bible and what we just read today reveals that they had wealth and knowledge to travel far and bring lavish gifts. They had a knowledge about the stars because that's what led them to Israel. But the Bible calls them magi. And the only other occurrence of that word in the Bible is in Acts 13, where it's actually translated as magician, one who practices sorcery. The historian Josephus confirms that magi were a priestly caste within the Parthian Empire. They practiced astrology, dream interpretation. And so these were not kings. They might have worked for kings. They might have been sent by kings, but these were themselves not kings. They were wealthy and important Persian priests, scholars, and astrologers, but not kings. And how many of them traveled to see Jesus? Well, the title of the carol says three, but the truth is we don't know. The Bible never actually gives us a number of magi who traveled to see Jesus. The Bible only tells us there were three types of gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three types of gifts are mentioned, but it never tells us how many givers of the gifts came. Now, the word magi is plural, so there were at least two, but we don't know how many total traveled to see Jesus. Now, finally, in the title is the word we, and I'm not going to dispute that word. But two out of the three words are incorrect, and that's not a good average. And beyond the title, the biggest error that we might make in putting the wise men in our Christmas stable scenes is we just read in Matthew 2.11, it says the Magi visited a child and not a baby. And the astute might have also noticed that it says that they visited him by going into a house and not a stable. The fact is the Magi might have visited Jesus as much as two years after he was born which is confirmed by what we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. It says, When Herod realized he'd been tricked, he sent so that all of the children who were two years older under were killed, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. He didn't send them out just to kill newborns. All the children two years old and under. So we find that they were not kings, they were not necessarily three of them, and they probably didn't arrive in the stable that first Christmas evening. So then why do we keep singing this carol, We Three Kings? 
Well, it's probably because my new, improved, and more accurate version, we indeterminate number of Persian priestly scholars who arrived two years after Jesus' birth, has not yet caught on. And I don't know why. I'll keep working on it. But today I want us to consider the first six verses of Matthew chapter 2. This week we're going to consider the first six verses of Matthew chapter 2 that talk about the arrival of the wise men in Israel to find this newborn king. And next week we're actually going to consider the end of the chapter that we just read, which is a part of the Christmas story that we don't like to talk about, we don't want to talk about, but actually speaks very directly to where many of us are during the Christmas season. But for today, we're going to look at these first six verses in Matthew chapter 2. Now, the Magi have just traveled for miles and miles, likely months and months, following a star. You might say that the Magi have taken the original Star Trek. I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. I won't let it happen again. The Magi arrive in Israel and they're looking for a newborn king. And where do they go to look? They go to the city. They go to the capital of Jerusalem because the city is where you expect to find people of power. They go to the palace and you're not going to find a palace in a podunk. You find it in the city. You see, the bias towards the big seems to have existed long before our time. The Magi arrive in the city of Jerusalem because that's where you're going to find a baby king. But when they don't find him, it says that the chief priests and scribes were consulted as to where the Messiah, God's promised anointed king, the one who is prophesied, where will he be born? And paraphrasing Micah the prophet, they answer that the Messiah is going to be born in a small town. He's going to be born in a small town, Bethlehem of Judea. The original prophecy from Micah chapter 5 emphasizes just how small and insignificant Bethlehem is. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and 4 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Ephrathah is the name of the district in which Bethlehem was located and in which King David himself was born. And look at the comment that Micah makes. He says, Bethlehem is too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's podunk. It's insignificant. It's unimportant. This is flyover country Israel. And born into that small town was David, the youngest, smallest, most insignificant member of his family. And even more, when God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David as king, where was David? He was tending sheep. Shepherds were the most despised. Tending sheep was the job of the youngest and most insignificant member of the family. So King David was an unlikely person from an unlikely place, chosen to be king. In the eyes of the world and his culture, he was too small, too insignificant, too unimportant. But he was exactly who God chose to shepherd his people, Israel. And now, and now the prophet says, a king greater than David is come. And the prophet Michael says, the eternal shepherd of Israel 
God's chosen Messiah will be born. And he's not going to be born in a great city. He's going to be born in a small town. So it is that Jesus was born in flyover country Israel. Podunk Bethlehem, laid in a manger, born to insignificant parents, attended by unimportant shepherds. There's the Savior of the world. And friends, not only was Jesus born in a small town, he lived in a small town. He was raised in Nazareth. And when one of the men who would eventually become his disciple, his follower, first heard about Jesus and heard that he grew up in Nazareth, his response was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a small town. It's flyover country. Can anything good come out of those backwards, uncultured people who time is left behind? Because doesn't everything that's really important come from or move as quickly as possible to the city? If Jesus was going to be anything important or do anything important, why was he born in a small town? Why did he live in a small town? Can anything good come from a small town? Friends, the Christmas story tells us that God does not look at things the way that you and I look at things. God does not measure value the same way that you and I measure value. He doesn't measure importance the way the world measures importance. God does not automatically say bigger is better, stronger is better, beautiful is better, smarter is better, city over small town. What we find in the Christmas story is that God is the God of the insignificant. The things that this world says don't matter. Podunk, fly over. God chooses those things to accomplish his purposes. Jesus was born in a small town. And he lived in a small town. And during his life, he actively ministered to the small town. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 tells us, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, the small towns, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. You see, the small town wasn't just an afterthought to Jesus. It wasn't just, you know, flown over on his way to the important events that he had in the big cities. The villages, the small town was important because, friends, the people in the small towns are important to God. What the world calls small and insignificant and unimportant, God loves, he chooses, and he uses Friends, what the world might consider as small and insignificant and unimportant is what God loves, what he chooses, and what he uses. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Christmas. Because some of you here were born in a small town, and most of us here live in a small town, and some of us here will die in a small town. And you might not feel particularly important. You might have felt a bit insignificant. You might have struggled all of your life to feel important enough to warrant attention or notice or help or even love. And many of us at some time or another, we've felt flown over, passed over for promotion, for opportunity, for love, for attention, for relationship. Many might feel, well, I'm just a small person from a small town. I'm powerless to make an impact on this world and its problems. What can I do? To make a difference. I don't walk the halls of power. I walk the halls of the local high school. 
I don't create artwork that's going to be seen by legions. I create artwork that's only seen by the locals. My economic decisions do not affect Wall Street. The influence of my economic decisions goes no further than Main Street. My work is not changing the world. My work is changing diapers or customer orders or broken parts or laundry loads or the garbage. I don't live in this city. I just live in a small town. And the good news, the good news of Christmas is found in God's choice of the little town of Bethlehem. That God loves and he chooses and he uses the small like you and like me. You know, the Apostle Paul had to remind the early church of this. Because it's easy for us to forget and we need to be reminded too. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church in Corinth, he wanted to remind them of this. And he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want us to briefly look at that. So if you want to turn there in your Bible with me. Again, that's page 895 in the Pew Bible and 1131 if you happen to have one of the large print Bibles. But Paul had to remind the early church of this important truth that we learn from the Christmas story. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, God chooses and uses the podunk to shame the powerful, the flyover to shame those who are flying high, the small town to shame the big city guys. God chooses to accomplish his purposes in this world through that which the world might see as unimportant and insignificant. And God proved that by saving the world through a small town boy. And friends, God continues his work today through small town boys and girls, small town men and women called to accomplish his purposes. Small town people like you and like me. Because some of you here might feel like Paul described in the letter. You, you might feel like this description. Paul said, not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards, not powerful in the eyes of the world, not of noble birth. You're just a small town boy or girl living in a small town. But don't doubt that God loves you and finds you significant enough that he sent his son looking for you. Jesus was born in a small town. He lived in a small town in order to call small town people like you and me. God loves what the world considers unimportant and insignificant. And we should probably stop there for a moment. Because I know that there are some of you that walked in here today feeling unimportant, insignificant, and unloved. And probably what you most need to hear this morning is that good news. The good news that God loves you. 
whatever the world has told you about your value, whatever your friends have said, whatever your husband or your wife said, whatever your parents told you, whatever your teachers have said about you, whatever society has said about you, God says you are important and significant. Important and significant enough that he sent Jesus to a small town just to find you. And friends, some of you have come here wounded by this world and feeling insignificant, unimportant, and unloved. And do not leave here today without knowing the healing love of Jesus Christ. And after this service, there'll be a prayer team up here, as there always is. And they would love to pray pray with you and to share with you more about the love of God shown to us in the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That you might know that you are loved, that you are significant, that God has come for you, Emmanuel. And for those who've come here this morning feeling small town and powerless, because it's easy to feel small town and powerless like the early church did. What am I supposed to do? I'm not a city boy. I don't live in the city. I don't live in the halls of power. I'm just from a small town. Friends, remember that God loves chooses and uses the small town. I mean, look again at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 and 29. God chooses the small to shame the wise, the strong, and the powerful. And how does that happen? We see the wise, the strong, and powerful think that they're going to save themselves. We're going to save this world. We're going to take care of all the world's problems by human wisdom, human strength, human power, human technology. And the wise, the strong and powerful have no room for God because they think they have no need of God. They're going to save the world themselves. And how's that working out? Read the headlines. Scroll through Facebook. Listen to the news. The wisdom of the university. The power of Wall Street. The creativity of Los Angeles. The beauty of Paris. The politics of Washington. Has the city saved us yet? And for all of the good that has come from the city, have you noticed that the solutions offered for our existing problems have created just as many problems as the problems they've managed to solve? Our hope for salvation and transformation of this world come not from the big city of human wisdom, power, and technology. Our hope for salvation and transformation of this world comes from the small town birth of Jesus Christ. From that which in the eyes of the world is foolish, insignificant, and unimportant, what God chooses and uses is the small town. God chooses and uses the small so that the world knows salvation and transformation comes not from our human power, but from him. Because if God chose to save the world through the power of the city, through the power of the wisdom and riches, we might be tempted to believe that we did or could save ourselves. So instead, God chose the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, the things that are not to shame and expose the impotence of human wisdom, power, and technology apart from Him. And what does that mean for us? Friends, it means that you are not insignificant. And the impact that you might have on this world and its problems is not insignificant if God is at work in you and through you. It means that the seemingly small people and small towns and small problems that God uses you to impact are not insignificant to Him. 
Therefore, the impact that you might have is not at all insignificant. In fact, it's eternally significant. God takes the mustard seed of courage that you offer him in faith, and from it, he'll sprout a disproportionately large tree of impact. God takes the small service that you offer to another in his name. He takes the seemingly insignificant comments about Jesus that you make to your coworker. He takes the apparently unimportant acts of love that you do for your spouse and your children. He takes your small service in the church nursery. He takes your love for a small group of children in Sunday school. He takes the meal that you prepare for the meal train. He takes the gifts that you buy and that you wrap for people in need. He takes the setting up and breaking down and running of water through Bethlehem, he takes and he uses the small and the seemingly insignificant, the seemingly inconsequential, and he can use it to make a disproportionately large impact on this world. Church, do not play small. Do not dream small. Do not serve small. Do not act small. You may have been born in a small town. You may live in a small town. You may even die in a small town. But that does not mean the impact that you're going to make on others and on this world is going to be a small impact. Because God chooses and uses the small to make a disproportionately large impact on this world. Just like he did in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Friends, the gospel, the good news of Christmas is that God loves the small. You are loved by God. You are chosen by God. And you can be used by God for big things. So my small town brothers and sisters, what huge impact is God calling you to have on your family, on your friends, on your neighbors, on this fellowship? on your workplace, on this community? What huge impact is God calling our small church in small town Maine to have on the entire mid-coast of Maine and to the very ends of the earth? What part will you play? Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth that we are loved. Thank you for the truth that we are significant. Significant because you've chosen us. Because you're at work in us and through us. And Father, we pray that you might use us to make a disproportionately large impact on this world. Because we want to see the mid-coast of Maine and the very ends of the earth reached with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.